Grainmaker Wrestling Podcast, a Prairie Proud Wrestling Podcast covering everything from Winnipeg to Worldwide. My name is Blair Pacheco, and today I am joined by a very special guest. My guest today is a legend in not just wrestling, but Canadian wrestling worldwide. He has made a name for himself over the years, comes from a rich wrestling family. My guest today, Jacques Rougeau. Jacques, how are you doing today? Hello, Blair. Thank you for that nice intro there. Pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> First off, I should say thank you for joining me. I, I truly appreciate it. So thank you very much for that. Well, thank you for having me on board. It's good. Now, we're going to talk about what you're doing currently, and it is huge, especially for independent wrestling in Canada. We're going to jump into that. But first, we're going to talk about a little bit more just about your career, stuff that people might not know. And that when I was doing reading up on you, doing my research, that I was blown away by. And I wanted to share that with everyone listening. All right. I hope I, uh, should I be afraid or <laughs> I don't, I don't think so. I think that, uh, I think the listeners will enjoy this. Um, right. <laughs> well, first off, I was, I had no idea that when you first started wrestling that you had made you, well, not made a name, but you had started off in stampede wrestling out West. Absolutely. Absolutely. That was a great, great thing. Uh, I was, uh, you know, I start. I was, like you said, I was in a, four generations of wrestling, you know, so, so for me, I, from the day I was born, you know, uh, I saw a championship belt and then and I saw my father as a hero mm-hmm. because my father was uh, one of the tough guys in Montreal, you know, uh, aside from wrestling, my dad was a, uh, a champion in golden glove boxing. He was doorman at a Macambo club where, and it was a classy, nice nightclub in Montreal that was owned by his brother, Johnny Rougeau, which was my uncle. Mm-hmm. And, but they were getting people like in Montreal in those days, like a chubby checker, uh, uh, I'm thinking Tina Turner and thinking <laughs> it was, it was a big nightclub in Montreal, you know, the, mm-hmm. the lamp. So, so my father was, um, a really tough guy because my father was the bouncer there, you know, the guy when trouble hits the place there, <laughs> my guy, my father. And, and it, it's funny because, you know, when I think about those days now, you know, my, uh, my dad passed away a couple of years ago, but uh, mm-hmm. it was the saddest day of my life, I think. But anyway, um, when he was doorman, you know, a lot of people don't know that, but, but Montreal was the door for the Marines and for the army and for the, the sailors, especially that would come around the world. They would come up St. Lawrence river all the way up, you mm-hmm. know, and, uh, and they'd come and they'd been on the boat for 25 days. They hadn't seen any woman or nothing. So, <laughs> so when they got in the nightclubs, you know, with a few drinks in them, they got pretty wild. So, but there was a lot of tough guys mm-hmm. and my father was really the one. And it's funny because when I traveled in wrestling around the world, you know, you talk about independent wrestlings, you know, and federations. But in the old days, it was like that, too. All around the world, it wasn't the WWF. It was all independent circuits. Mm-hmm. And, and and every time I went to wrestle starting 77, including Calgary, and when I started, everybody would talk about my dad. You know, and Stu Hart was the first guy I talked to mm-hmm. and, and, and booked myself when I was young. I was like uh, 17 years old when I called him. And, uh, and, and I'll never forget that. And I don't know if you guys, if you personally know Stu Hart or a little bit about him. I know a fair amount. I've read books about him and you, you see the documentaries and you hear stories. So, you know, I'm, I'm aware of him. So he, so he was a character. Well, I'll tell you, he was a real character. And then, so the first day 
I, I, I'm 17 years old and I wrestled a couple of backyard uh, wrestling shows, you know, around my house, you know, and stuff like that. But I, I was into wrestling since I was four years old. So, so I wanted to, I thought I was a pretty good wrestler then. And I wanted to hit the, you know, the, the territories. Mm-hmm. And my father looked at me and he says, Jesus Christ, you know, my, my, my nickname was bones, by the way. I mean, like, you know, I was, I was about 170 pounds on a whip and, you know, so it's like, uh, so my father would always look at me when I'd say, hey, dad, I'm ready to go on the road. I'd ready to go on the road. And he'd look at me and said, you're too skinny, you know, put some weight on you, you know, work out a bit. So, so finally I couldn't take it anymore. So I, I, I called, I used our name. The Rougeau name was the big, big name in the east of Canada. So mm-hmm. I used my name and I called Stu Hart. I got the number from somebody, I can't remember who. And anyway, I got the number and I called him. And uh, and and, uh, and I uh, I asked him, I said, uh, well, I called him. And when he answered, it was such so funny. I'll never forget that for the rest of my life. Because my first promoter I'm calling now to go on the road <laughs> as a professional wrestler. And he answers the phone and uh, I said, Mr. Hart, he says, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yes, yes. So I say, uh, well, Mr. Hart, I said, uh, my name is uh, Jacques Rougeau, and, and I'm, uh, and I'd like to go work in your territory, you know. And uh, uh, you know, uh, are you, uh, are you, uh, are, are you one of those uh, famous Rougeau Rougeaus there? And I said, uh, well, my dad's famous, and my uncle Johnny, and my great uncle <laughs> Eddie Oje, yeah. Tough guy there, and huh? your dad there. Tough guy there. Uh, so, uh, yes, yeah, uh, 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 I think I think I could use you. Yeah, and that was my first meeting with Stu Hart. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, holy shit, <laughs> this guy is weird, you know. Like, <laughs> but you know, he he talks weird, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but what a great man. You know, that then so I started, I went to Calgary and Brett was driving the bus at the time for Stampede Wrestling. He wasn't even wrestling yet, Brett, mm-hmm. and, uh, which became the best wrestler out of Canada altogether. But he was driving the bus. And uh, so I went there and it was so funny. They took me in like I was. He had a lot of respect for the Rougeau family. Mm-hmm. You know, although we never worked together, my dad never worked for them. It was always on the West Coast for them and the East Coast for us. Yeah. But he had this 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 respect for the business and 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 uh, so so when i went to calgary he took me in like i was his son mm-hmm. so like on, we had the loops that we traveled by bus you know and everything and wasn't making much money but i was having a great time and uh, and i remember my mom who i went to see her when i left the first time i said mom dad doesn't want me to go so he says can you lend me 500 dollars? you know i need to pay my first week my hotel so my mom <laughs> gave me the money so for me to take off and it was so funny because when i got to calgary uh, the first Sunday I was there, like I worked the first week and I was staying, Jesus Christ, I was staying at a dump there in the St. Regis Hotel. It was like a little cheap, cheap place, but that's all I could afford. You know, I was mm-hmm. only making like $250 a week. I had to pay trans, food and hotel. So, so anyway, long story short is when Sunday would come, Stu would always ask me, why don't you, uh, why don't you come uh, and have dinner with us there, you know, or, or lunch at noon, you know? And, and I was so happy because I was all by myself. And I said, yeah. And uh, and when I got there, Jesus Christ, I think there was about 15 kids in the house. There was about 20 cats. But it was like it was it was like amazing. And anyway, I always thought he did that, you know, because he liked me and he respected the Rougeau family. But then I realized that every time, you know, we'd finish eating, you know, a couple hours later or something, he'd always tell me, uh, you know, uh, we got a dungeon there. Uh, we got a gym downstairs there. Uh, uh, maybe you'd like to come down there. And, I, and I'd heard about it. 
That's that, mm-hmm. that's where they stretch guys. You know, that's where they really put guys to the anyway to to, to work there if you want. You know, and they like, stiffen them up a little bit. So mm-hmm. I was already aware. So every time he come up to me and he said, I said. Well, Stu, I'd like to do that, but I have something planned this afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that was a great place to start my business. You know. Well, when you're 17 years old, I mean, it's a lot different ne- than now. You know, back then you don't have the same luxuries. You don't. You're not as connected with everyone. So when you're 17, you pack up and you go halfway across Canada. Being able to go into an environment like that, where it's so friendly and welcoming, it it must have made a world of difference for someone like yourself. It sure did, you know, and 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 uh, you know, I remember the great workers that were there, you know, but 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 most of all, what what came out of that was, I went there in '77, and then I spent like four months, mm-hmm. came back home, and then the next year I went back. I was, you know, because I really enjoyed it, and he liked my work. You know, I was I was young, but he liked my work, so he so he brought me back again. So I was doing the first matches all the time. You know, mm-hmm. I made it up to the middle there for I wrestled John Foley and a, a couple of guys for the light heavyweight title. So I tasted that a little bit. Never won it, but I tasted it. You mm-hmm. know, a match in there, but I was going up in my career slowly. And out of there in '78, when I went back for the second time, I met a guy named Louis Larance, the farmer Louis Larance. Mm-hmm. And he connected me with Mexico. Okay. So I went from there to Mexico City. From and, and when I went to Mexico City, you talk about an experience. I'm 18 years old. I'm skinny. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm putting a little pecs on. There are a couple of biceps, but no, I'm really skinny. And uh, but but what an experience that was going to Mexico. Mm-hmm. I mean. Uh, by 18, you've already done more things that you know friends and other people in wrestling could only dream of. Well, to be honest with you, you know. I always say in life, uh, you know, I, I always said all my life I was lucky. You know, mm-hmm. I was really lucky. I was lucky for to have the Rougeau name because mm-hmm. that opened so many doors for me. But uh, but I was on the other part. I always say today, you know, I'm lucky, but you make your own luck in life. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I, I, I didn't smoke. I didn't drink. I didn't go out in bars. I was I was consistently trying to learn something new. I was watching all the other matches before me, uh, or mostly after me, because I was mostly on first. But mm-hmm. anyway, uh, and, and and picking up knowledge like that. And and when I went to Mexico, Jesus Christ, you think it was hard going to Calgary at 17. Try to go at 18, where you land in Mexico City, where they don't speak English. It's mm-hmm. not like landing in Acapulco there or Puerto Vallarta, where it's all tourists. You know, when you land in Mexico City in the industrial part, you know, of, of the of Mexico, mm-hmm. I had to learn like, uh, uh, and then the, the someone would say, uh, comida, comida, like, you know, I'd say, yeah, 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 comida. And then I'd go to a restaurant, you know, everything was spicy for me over there. And mm-hmm. then it was like, uh, and then I'd say uh, something like, uh, uh, ugh, like it's no good, you know, but I didn't have the words. So I'd go, ugh, ugh. So then I'd say, uh, I'd go ahead and I'd say, uh, and then she said, no me gusta, no me gusta. And then I'd say, no, no, no me gusta, no me gusta. <laughs> so then I figured out that me gusta means I like it, you know. So I learned the language like that, you know, and then mm-hmm. uh, hotel, hotel, you know. And uh, and thank God there was uh, some similarity with French and Spanish. There's mm-hmm. like some words that they, they define. You could almost find the word in there when you talk, but they have extra syllables and different. Uh, but but uh, so that was rough. And then when I got on the bus to travel with the guys, it was like, you know, I thought it was rough in Calgary going from Saskatoon to Regina and then going back the same night, you know, all the way to Calgary to be at Stampede on Friday night. You know, mm-hmm. we had like a 10, 12 hour drive from Regina, but that was nothing. When I got to Mexico, it was like, 
30 miles an hour with the buses, you know, and everybody's speaking Spanish. None of the rest of spoke English except Raul Mata, who I remember him once in a while. He'd send a word to me in English to see if I'm still alive. But apart <laughs> from that there, I wasn't part of this, this world. And it was like, it was so hard. I missed, I missed, I missed so much home. Like, mm -hmm. you know, but, but what a great experience because um, first of all, the the tag team situation is completely different over there. It's like they don't make tags, I guess. You know, when you tag in and out of the ring, it's mm -hmm. like it's a free for all. It's like when one guy jumps in the ring, there's a high spot. The guy rolls out, and then it's the other one's already in. And and, and most of the time at the beginning, it was like, hey, ref, he didn't tag. <laughs> you know? And they were saying, and they kept telling me, Roro, no tag, Roro, no tag. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and and everybody was like, off the top rope backflips it was so spectacular and, and, and i and i stole some moves and when i got back home at the age of 18 people would look at me like at my montreal they would say holy shit that's a nice move and that's a nice move and but i was always out there making my luck like you know mm -hmm. going out to perform there and doing that uh, it, it, it was a and the other thing too about traveling like especially in mexico and uh, i think of salt lake city i think of a few, pla few places i went where the altitude was very high mm -hmm. like you know when you go to mexico city it's like four thousand two hundred feet high everywhere here that's in the mountains when you know we're in canada you go up those mountains they have but there you're in the ring mm -hmm. so <gasps> i was always blown up mm -hmm. and it was so hard but then when i came back from there and i wrestled here Wow, I could go 25 minutes like nonstop and just bum, 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 bum. so 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 you learn a lot and, and you go through a lot of things. But what a great, great experience. And the last thing I say about Mexico in 78 was I got really depressed at the end, you know, because when we'd finished the shows, we travel like another 10 hours by bus, bruh, 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 and then you'd look at the side of the window and you could almost fall like thousands of feet, you know, it was always <laughs> up in the mountains, and all the boys. They would drink like crazy in Mexico. And so they were all on the bus, you know, and laughing and having, and I couldn't hear nothing. I didn't understand nothing. And I was like, I was paranoid a bit, you know, I was young and, and I always thought they were talking about me. And it was a rough time there. And I remember going back to Mexico City. I was coming back from Guadalajara. And, and, and when I got to Mexico City, you know, I hadn't spoke to my family like in two months. Mm -hmm. because it cost, it's not like today when there it costs a lot of money to call and you have to call like from Mexico to United States, United States to Canada. It was like, it was the connections. It wasn't like today with a phone. You have to make two, three operators before I get the call and it was yeah. expensive and I wasn't making a lot of money, not <laughs> at all. So I remember calling my mom, you know, <laughs> it was so amazing. I called the phone and my mom answered and she said, uh, she says, hello. And I said, and I, I went to say mom, but I started almost crying. Mm -hmm. I couldn't say mom. I was like, I was <laughs> mom, you know, and, and I was so sad. It was so, it was amazing. And then, uh, and because my dad had told me before I left from Calgary, I told him, Hey dad, I'm going to Mexico. Like, Hey, you, like up yours, you know, you thought I was too young and this. So like, I'm going to Mexico now, you know, I'm, uh, he was my thrive, my father, because he said I couldn't do it. And I was mm -hmm. the kind of guy, if he said you couldn't do it, I'd do it. Yeah. So anyway, but he had told me before I left, he said, he said, uh, son, don't go to Mexico. It's going to be rough. It's going to be tough. It's not mm -hmm. like in the Canada or in the States. And I said, don't worry, dad, don't worry. So finally, after two months, I called for the first time. 
And then it was so horrible. You know, my mom finally, you know, I cried. And, you know, she was, I was in my room alone. Thank God no one saw <laughs> the, the big man there. But anyway, but uh, all that to say that uh, it was hard. And then finally when my, my, my mom, you know, in English, I was called Jimmy, by the way. In French, it was Jacques Rougeau, like my dad. I was Jacques Jr. But, but around the house, my mom was English. So it was always Jimmy. So in French, I was Jacques in school and my friends. But in English, it was Jimmy. So I remember she telling me when I first called, and she said, Jimmy? And when she said Jimmy, she just broke my heart. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it was like, holy shit. And I couldn't talk. And uh, it took me about five, ten seconds to, to get my breath back. And then she was saying, is that you, Jimmy? Is that you? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's me. <laughs> it's me, but, but what, a, what a trip that was. Yeah, yeah. Well, how long did you end up staying in, or in uh, Mexico? About three months. Three months? Uh, one month after I talked to my mom, I couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it was like, you know why? It's because for two months I was traveling a lot, and 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 after the the, the third month, they, the the promoter Salvador Luteraf, he started telling me, uh, and, and I got to put you in context there, that in Mexico City after two months, I found a restaurant that was called Super Leche, like the big glass of milk, Super mm -hmm. Leche, and, and I went there on one day, and I was always by myself, and I walked into that place, and I I get a menu, and, and this cute little girl. She comes to me and, and she spoke English. Mm -hmm. And she said to me, she says, uh, you're a tourist, huh? you're a tourist. And I said, yeah. But when she spoke to me, it was like, holy shit. I just connected with Earth, you know, planet Earth. And then she said to me, one moment, one moment. So she comes back and she has an English menu. And there was a first time in two months I saw the English menu. <gasps> Holy mackerel. Like, and then after that, I, I became nostalgic. And I, you know, and then uh, from that day on, every time I come back from a loop, I'd always end up in Mexico for two, three days. I'd call her right away. You know, I'd go see her <laughs> right away. And finally, I started dating her. And, uh, but the thing about it was, is about two weeks after I started doing that, we get to Guadalajara on the Friday. So I know after the bus, we're going back for the weekend in Mexico City for a day off Saturday and Sunday, the big show. And then back on the road again, Monday. So the, so after my Guadalajara show, the promoter comes to see me. He says, hey, Roro. He says, you stay Guadalajara now this weekend. You stay. You don't go to Mexico. He says, you go up the stairs in the arena and you go down. Up the stairs, you go down. He says, you have no cardio, no cardio. <laughs> <laughs> I did it for two freaking weeks or three weeks. And then I, I, I broke, you know, and then what I did is like, he told me the last, I, I, the, the third show, like after two months and three weeks, he told me, Roro, you don't go to Mexico. And I said, okay, okay. And I sneaked out and I got onto the bus <laughs> and I didn't have cellular phones then. You know, there was no cellular phone, so they couldn't call the bus and say, hey, drop him off. You know, he's got to stay. So once the bus took off, I, I was going like, this is it, man. So it's like I got in Mexico and I packed my stuff and I went to the airport. I bought a ticket. I had enough to buy my and I went home. That's how <laughs> I left. I left like in a real cheap way, but I didn't tell anybody I was leaving or nothing. But it was like, <laughs> I got to get out of Dodge. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, yeah. So that, but what an experience, you know. Well, you had mentioned, you know, it was the hearts out West and, you know, the Rougeaux out East, the, the whole scene out in Quebec, what was that like for people who might not know? Well, it was like, uh, it, it was really hot because uh, every weekend, you know, it was, we were on TV and, you know, mm -hmm. we were like mega stars, like, you know, and uh, we had Edward Carpanti, the great Edward Carpanti, who was doing the, uh, the commentaries. You know, mm -hmm. and, and he'd always finish his Sunday shows at 11 o'clock in the morning, like, uh, à la semaine prochaine, si Dieu le veut. Like, you know, uh, 
see you next week if God's will, you know, or, and he'd always finish his, his, his show. And everybody got attached to his French accent from France. And they loved Edouard for spectacular backflips off the top rope. He's one of the first one who did it. So we were like, and as a matter of fact, I'll tell you how bad it was or how good it was for us, but how bad it was for some people. The, uh, the churches on Sunday, they stopped doing their churches at 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings because there was no one going to the church anymore. They would go like at 9 o'clock, at 10 o'clock, and, and at noon. But 11 o'clock, the, the, the priest was there sitting by himself. You know, he should have brought his TV. He'd probably be watching wrestling, too, because it was so popular wrestling, you know, in our days in the in the 70s and the 80s, you know, the early 80s. So that's how popular it was, you know, and I, I'd walk into a shopping center, a restaurant, and they'd look at, they'd look at me like Michael Jackson just came in. <laughs> but that's how hot it was, you know, so, so it was great. It was a great, great era and a great time. Well, before, you know, we were talking, you know, I, I did some, you know, I was reading up on, you know, the overall vibe of the uh, the Quebec scene, you know, what it was like. And one thing that I was really enthralled by was that, you know, you had a lot of the, you know, wrestlers, you had, you know, Nick Bockwinkle from AWA come out East, you know, you had, you know, Abdullah the Butcher, who I know you had matches with. Oh, um, yes. And it really had the, you know, it was uh quebec versus the world and i i think exactly and i think that was really something special it was an international flavor at home Mm -hmm. and you know it's funny because they had a guy like hans schmidt a big big german guy who lived about uh, 40 miles from montreal but he was disguised as a german guy and Mm -hmm. then you had uh, so you had all these characters that my dad and my uncle created like abdullah the butcher he came from an hour away from Montreal in, in Ontario on the border. That's where he came from. Mm-hmm. And my father, my uncle put a sheet on his head and made him turn into Abdullah the butcher, which from Sudan, mm-hmm. you know, which, uh, so you had all these local wrestlers who would have their, 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 their hidden life. Like, you know, but they, like they were from another world, mm-hmm. but, but there were some few international guys. I'm thinking like a Bobo Brazil. I'm thinking of uh, Igor, Igor, the strong man. I'm thinking of the Sheik from Detroit, the real Eddie Farrat, the original Sheik. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of, uh, Jesus, who was it? The Maguire twins, the 640-pound guys that would come in with a, a, a mini bike, a mini, a little bike where you couldn't see the bike when they'd come to the <laughs> ring. They were so big. Yeah. And then, But you had a lot of guys that had the Fidel and Raul Castillo, the Castillo brothers that would come from Puerto Rico. Carlos Colon, who owned the mm-hmm. business for so long. He came wrestled from my dad a lot. Don Serrano. So you had all these international guys that they would fly in to feed the local talent. And mm-hmm. then everybody, like you said, it's so well said. Like, you know, it was Montreal against the world, mm-hmm. you know, Quebec against the world. And it was, and they were so proud. And of course, my dad being the booker and my uncle, the owner, well, the Quebec people always managed to win, you know, the battles, <laughs> not, every, not, 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 not every battles, but they'd win the war, mm-hmm. you know, so if they had a long-term deal there where it ended up with a loser leave match or something like that, when my father would be the hero and my uncle too. So, so everybody was so proud of the Rougeau. So, so they knew how to feed the Quebec fans. Mm-hmm. And, and the Quebec wrestlers. It was, it was a great time, of course. You mentioned the, you know, might not necessarily winning the battle, but, you know, ending up winning the war. And uh, I think that can be very well spoke with your the feud with the Garvins. Holy mackerel. Because I know the St. Jean, Jean-Baptiste Day massacre. massacre. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that was something. You know what? What was great about that? That was considered one of the best angles in tag team that ever came in the history of Montreal. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. because my brother Raymond and myself who became the fabulous Rujo brothers in the WWF and all that, mm-hmm. but we wrestled locally. You know, every time I'd come back from trips and tours, and we and Raymond was such a great grounded wrestler. Like you know, he was he wasn't tall, but he was the basic of our team. I was the high flyer; he was the basic, mm-hmm. and he was more mature than me. He was five years older than me. He was the first one of the Rujos of the sons that came in in my era, like a third generation. Mm-hmm. So, so he was the first one that my uncle Johnny and my father took on, and we had built the credibility as so strong as the Rujo brothers. And we'd always worked off of that. Like, uh, not only we worked that as a gimmick, like, you know, blood is thicker than water, but mm-hmm. we'd always work in the ring as, I, I, I didn't have, we'd do a high spot, we'd do something in the ring, two, three guys, and, and I would never have to turn around to see if Raymond was there. I knew he was there. Mm-hmm. And that's just the, the relationship we had. And there came the Garvins, Jimmy Garvin and Ronnie Garvin, the brothers, mm-hmm. the Garvin brothers who came from the States. So it was like, the American brothers are going to try to de- beat the Quebec brothers, you know? And then they had their manager, Precious, a girl that was very beautiful. She had a can of spray. And so on that angle that you're talking about, they came to the Montreal Forum. It was a big, big event. And uh, there was a buildup, almost like the boss man and me and, and then the cops situation in WWF. It was the same thing for them. And mm-hmm. as the brothers, they were always beating everybody. And they were always on their promo saying, we want those Rougeau brothers one day. We want those. And we were doing the same thing. We were beating everybody all the heels, the bad guys. And we were saying, we'll take you on, uh, Garvins. If you want to come on, we'll take you on. So we build that story. And when finally we got to the Montreal Forum, 20,000 people, they started announcing us. But before they even announced us, the, the match never started. Precious came in front of me with her can of spray there, and she went, and she blinded me with the spray. Mm-hmm. So I was like out of the picture. I was on the floor selling like I never sold in my life, you know, like, oh, my eyes are burned. I, I was screaming out loud, and everybody was like going wild. They were so pissed, and the match never started. So Raymond got jumped by the two Garvins, and he fought like crazy. He fought them both, and then finally they got the best out of him. They were two, and here comes my old dad. Here he comes into the ring, and he's got to come to the rescue, and they beat him up. And, mm-hmm. then, and then, then Jimmy Garvin took a, a camel clutch or a Boston crab on my dad, and Ronnie Garvin went up the top rope and he dropped a knee drop right in his back. And they, they put him on the stretcher and stuff. And they just left. And there was never so the announcer finished by when they cleared the ring. And I was I was on the floor still screaming like a, like like you know, the end of the world. And Raymond was beat up on the floor. We were all juiced up. I was full of blood. He was full of blood. My dad was on a on a on a, on a stretcher. And, and they were looking at the people like, you know, the brother, the Garvin brothers, and the Garvin <laughs> brothers. Man, did they have heat. So then the announcer picks up the mic and he says, well, ladies and gentlemen, they're, they're, there's not going to be a match tonight. 20,000 people. And then we came back a month later of the 24th of June, the Quebec's birthday of the, it's like almost the 4th of, 4th of July in the States. Or, or I know, I mean, uh, in Canada, it's the 1st of, of July, I believe. Mm-hmm. And, but in the States, it's the 4th of July. In Quebec, it's the 24th of June. And it's an, and it's the big, big Independence Day with the fleur de lis and everything. So so we came back as the Saint-Jean-Baptiste massacre. Like mm-hmm. we came back and, oh, you give me goosebumps. <laughs> because I was such in great shape. I had put myself, then I was mature. I was like 23, 24 years old. I had picks. I had deltoids. I had traps. I had 19-inch arms. And I had, I was the golden boy. Like, you know, the blonde hair, you know, not blonde, mm-hmm. but, but, but dark. Uh, dark blonde and, and light brown like just 
But 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 you know, I, I looked at my best then. And when I came into the ring, boy, that there was no bell either that time. We just jumped them and we kicked their ass <laughs> the whole time. And the 20,000 people that were there a month ago, they were all back and we sold out so much in advance. Like, you know, people wanted to come see the massacre. We did the promos for it. That was probably the best angle I've ever done in my life. Mm-hmm. I think it's one that uh, a lot of people might not know about, but it deserves the recognition as a, a standalone in Canadian wrestling history for just how impactful it was. What a souvenir, I'll tell you. For you to give me goosebumps like 20, 35 years later, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I'm still thinking about it like, wow, what a great, great, great adventure that was. Well, I know in your time, you know, uh, when you, because you had wrestled in St. Louis and, you know, around that area, you, I I know you had actually shared the ring with uh, a Manitoba legend uh, from Shoal Lake, Bulldog Bob Brown. Bob Brown. Yes. Bob Brown, right? (laughs) <laughs> so I, I i know he's uh he's a name that most people familiar with the the winnipeg wrestling scene or manitoba wrestling scene are familiar with um but for yourself you know you're sharing the ring with uh you know uh, i i think i could say a bit of a, a hard ass you know with the uh his persona but uh, what was that like for you well you know what I'm, I, 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 you know, I'm, I got to be honest with you, and, and, and that's my way of talking. I, I didn't know he was from Canada. Mm-hmm. I didn't know Bob Brown was from Canada. Mm-hmm. So, so, so it was like, for me, it was just like a tough guy in the States and all that. The cauliflower ears, you know, that he's been on the mat a few times. He's got stretched a few times and he stretched a lot. But he had a reputation. But you know what? I didn't know him like that. Mm-hmm. Because when I got there... He was so nice to me. He was so nice in the dressing room. He was laughing all the time. He was the guy like the Owen Hart of those (laughs) days. He was so nice. And, you know, so I never knew that he was that tough guy you're talking about. I never <laughs> knew that. You're just teaching me that now. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought he was just an old timer with cauliflower ears, but mm-hmm. in the greatest heart, the biggest heart and all the guys that was there. He was with Bob Geigel at the time and he was booking for for, for Kansas City, mm-hmm. St. Louis. And I was in that territory. And actually, that was the first time that I won a tag team title with uh, Bruce, Butch Reed. He was, oh, yeah. uh, we, we were the salt and pepper team. He was black and I was white <laughs> and they used to call us the salt and pepper team. And then Bob Brown, he gave me those belts, you know, for the, for the first time uh, on the road that mm-hmm. I became a tag team champion. And so I have nothing but great memories of Bob Brown. You know, mm-hmm. he, he helped me a lot. He, and I was a little arrogant, a little cocky. I was young. I was like a stud and I had a lot of things to learn in those days that I didn't know, but mm-hmm. uh, outside the ring, you know, and, and he was always coming up to me like, uh, uh, don't worry, kid, you know, don't worry, kid. You worry too much. You know, you worry too much. <laughs> he, was, he was a great, great uh, uh, counselor, if you'd like, or I don't know how to say that, uh, a mentor. Yeah. You know? uh, now I know like, my first, um, the first time I saw you was, you know, when you were part of the fabulous Rougeos, um, you know, you went on to do the Mountie. And I think one thing that always stood out to me was your, you know, how expressive you were, you know, like the, your overall persona, you, you magnified that to the umph degree and it, it always came across, you know, I went back the other day and I was showing my fiance, uh, you know, some of the Mountie vignette, uh, vignettes and wa- <laughs> yeah. watching them now, it's just like, you know, like back then, you know, as a, you know, a kid, I'm like, oh, I don't like them. But now you're like, this is incredible <laughs> stuff. This is great. You know what? I always attributed to the success that even when I, I had some, I had 20 years of wrestling school and all the, the, the students that I had in my school, 
I always told them, if you want people to believe what you're doing, you have to believe it yourself. Mm -hmm. And if you believe it yourself and you act like you're really in that circumstance, if you get in the ring and the guy goes to, to, to grab your leg or something, you just, you don't, you don't just keep walking. <clears throat> you act surprised. Mm -hmm. like, oh, you gotta, you gotta make everything that's in there. Like it was real, you know, and when you're fighting, you're doing your comeback. You're, you gotta do like you're, you're fighting for, for the last breath you have in you. Like, you know, and some guys were just doing the motions where, where, where I explained to them, if, if that will make a difference. Like take Kevin Owen. Kevin mm -hmm. Owen was one of my students for four years. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, I took him at 14 years old. So I had time. He wasn't, he didn't have bad habits when he came to my school. He, like, you know, I had time to make him what I wanted him to be mm -hmm. and showed him everything to, that, he, that, he, that he could learn. And, and not only in the ring, not, he had great ability in the ring, but I, I showed him different things, the promos, and, and, and I showed him, uh, like, uh, you know, sometimes in wrestling, you hear that expression, less is more. Yeah. Like, you know, a, a lot of people, they just go a thousand things in the ring, but doesn't mean nothing. You might as well just do three things, but make the people believe that what just happened just happened. Mm -hmm. You know, and that was my strength. It was, I had a lot of, uh, and, and you know, it's funny that you say that because uh, over the years, I figured out there, uh, Blair, that uh, I'm kind of a special person in a way. <laughs> you know, I am. I, I don't mean in a good way. I mean, I mean, like, you know, you have normal people here and you have autistic people here and I'm probably about right here, you know, just almost normal. And, mm -hmm. and what that means, that means that what a normal person life would take in and let go. Me, when I take it in, it was like, wow. And when I let it go, it was like, oh, mm -hmm. you know, I, I always had deep feelings of every emotion that I lived. And mm -hmm. many times, because I believe so much in my career and, and into my characters, that I had a hard time like realizing, hey, is this real or not? <laughs> you know, like not, not as far as hurting anybody, but just like things would happen around me and it would take me a lot of time to analyze it. I'd have to think about it two, three times to realize the, uh, the deepness of, of what's going on around where people like a gray zone, if you'd like. For mm -hmm. me, it was always black or white, you know, and there was no gray. Mm -hmm. I, I couldn't just be stable. I was always a wow or oh. And, and, and so, so that played against me in life for many things, like in the dressing room and, and encounters with people, but it played in my favor and my character. Mm -hmm. Because in my character, it would come out like, like you said, you know, you, you'd look at me and, 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 and without bragging, I, I was believable in everything I did, because I believed it myself. I acted, act, I, sometimes, like, you know, I was in the ring, and some guys, example, they were, they were I, I'll take an example. I'm getting beat up on the floor, kicks mm -hmm. and punches. And next thing you know, I'm kicking his ass. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, it don't work like that. Yeah. In my mind, it was like, I, I, I'm getting beat up and then I'll desperately give a shot. Boom. And then I'll still die. You know, I'll still keep hurting. And the guy comes at me again and I'll roll around. I'll avoid him. And then he tries to grab me again. And then I'll, I'll you see, I, I make it realistic. <laughs> and, and, and with my attitude and my, my mind, uh, because I was a special person and in in, in really was, it was easy for me to act like it was real. Mm -hmm. So I'd always do like, if I was sitting in the fans, if I was sitting in the chair and I saw what was going on in the ring, what I was doing, would I believe it or not? Would I make it con convincing? Or mm -hmm. so, so that helped me a lot in my life and, and as far as my business. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, one thing that always stood out to me, what, what, I mean, one of my favorite uh, times was um, 
back in 1992, um, you had yourself as the Mountie, you had Bret Hart and you had Roddy Piper, all sort of kind of feuding at once. <laughs> but I think what at the time we didn't realize was that you had three Canadian wrestlers. They didn't portray it that way because, you know, they would always say Roddy was from Scotland, but you had, you know, Winnipeg born or Winnipeg raised Roddy Piper, yourself from Montreal and Brett from Calgary. And I think you look at that now and you just see the impression that Canadian wrestling had on that. Oh my God. You know, and, uh, and I didn't even know Rowdy Piper was from Winnipeg. <laughs> you're, te you're teaching me something. You know, I, 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 I thought he was from the States, but with a disguise from Scotland, I didn't know he was Canadian. Mm -hmm. See, and I was with him all the time. So it just goes to show there's so much things in the business that you could, that you could miss, mm -hmm. you know, because of the characters and, and, but, uh, but one thing I do remember is uh, having that position to take the belt from Brett and giving it to Rowdy Piper on a pay-per-view. I, I don't think I was deserving to be one of those talents up there, you know, and I had a lot of shots like that in the WWF where I ended up being tag team champions. I ended up turning Sid Vicious babyface in one night. I, uh, I worked with Randy Macho Man uh, with Miss Elizabeth overseas because the Mountie was strong overseas because of all they have another kind of Mounties, you know, over there mm -hmm. where, where they're in front of their castle and they can't smile, they can't talk and they can't move. And, and I would do it on purpose. I did so many promos. I'd go as the Mountie and get in front of him. I'd try to make him laugh. Or try to make him, <laughs> but, 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 but all this to say that uh, I think there was also a, 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 a problem between Brett dropping the belt to Piper. So, mm -hmm. so the fact that the two, I only had it two days, by the way, I was the shortest lived intercontinental title <laughs> holder that ever happened. That was me. <laughs> but, uh, but it's funny because 30 years later, I do comic cons and everything and all my the pictures, the dolls, they all have the belt and mm -hmm. I only had it for two days. <laughs> but I think there was a problem between the two. I don't know what the bottom line is, but I know that uh, I was so happy that Vince chose me to be the one who switches the titles, you know? So, mm. so if, he, if you know, I always say to myself up to this day, I look at characters and everything, and I'm a great movie fan. And I always say to create a great Batman, you need a greater Joker, mm -hmm. you know? To, 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 you must have a big, big heel that makes sense to make a big baby face, mm -hmm. you know? And so if they chose me in all those spots, you know, it's like for me, it was a compliment. You know, I mm -hmm. look at this today and I said, hey, I did have a few great spots in there, you know, which uh, which is complimentary to my career. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I the other day I had rewatched uh, the match where it was uh, you and Piper, I think from Saturday night's main event. And uh, with the anti-shock. Uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> you know, that was my idea. I got to tell you this. That was that was great. I didn't want to do a job, you know, with my, my, my own stick, my electric stick, like in the middle. And you know? I was trying to think I was going to do any way they wanted, but I was trying to think of a way where I didn't lose too much credibility. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I, I thought of this. I said, wow. So I went to see Vince. And actually, I don't know if I went to see Rowdy or Vince, but I went to tell him, I said, hey, would you mind wearing a vest? under your shirt there. And, and, and when I zap you with my stick there, I think I got you beaten everything. And you just turn around and kick my ass and beat me right there in the middle. I'm so surprised. And then he grabs the shirt and he takes it off. And then it says anti-shock on the, on the vest, like almost like a policeman that has an anti-bullet thing there, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, a vest. So it was like, that was, I was happy because they used that thought I had that idea and people forgot about my loss. It was mm -hmm. so entertaining that they forgot that I got that I got beat. They just enjoyed the time that they saw that, you know. So, uh, so it's all good. 
Now, before we get into what you're currently doing, that is going to, I think, you know, it's going to change independent wrestling, especially in Canada. Uh, I'm going to play a little something just for everyone to hear, and then we're going to jump right into talking about that. So uh, I'm just going to cue that up. Hey everybody, this is QT Marshall from All Elite Wrestling and one of the owners of one of the best training facilities in the world, the Nightmare Factory. And I wanted to give a quick shout out to Nick, who runs a Rise podcast, and this evening has Jacques Rougeau on there. And Jacques has a great project in the works. I'm excited about it. In fact, the Nightmare Factory has even uh, told Mr. Rougeau that the winners of this project will receive a special three-month, 12-week scholarship to the Nightmare Factory, which has seen athletes from all over the world come train with us. And, and honestly, some have signed contracts with major wrestling organizations in the world, such as AEW and stuff like that. So um, I'm excited for this project. I think it's a great for, for aspiring professional wrestlers all throughout Canada. Um, I support it, and I hope that if all works out well, I'll be able to come up to Montreal and partake in being one of the judges of this of this special project. So good luck to everyone. Just wanted to say hello. Just wanted to let everybody know that it is me um, and we are offering this scholarship to the winners. So um, you can read into it, whatever you want, but you've heard it straight from the horse's mouth. It is true. And again, good luck to everyone and hopefully see you soon. Now, I'm not Nick, but Jacques, what is going on? I'm not, you know, I'm so blessed. Jesus Christ. You know, it's a, I had this crazy idea with my girlfriend, you know, and uh, there's this uh, TV show in Montreal that's called Star Academy, mm -hmm. which is for the singers. And then so, so they started this thing about 10 years ago, maybe, or 15 years ago. I can't remember. It was like, they're taking all these singers, amateur singers, and, and they do a show and every week they would eliminate them. You know, mm -hmm. like and to make the last one where she has her own record deal and she has her own thing, sings with Celine Dion and, uh, and everything like that. It was the big deal. And so I said to myself, I said, wow, what if we did that with wrestling? Mm -hmm. And you know what's great about this thing? So now we're end up with, if you go on wrestling-academy.ca, if you have a chance to put the link there at the end, people must go see this. It's amazing. And, and, it, and it happened so slowly, but it happened. So we recruited 42 talent. Women and men from all the way to Vancouver, Jordy Taylor to Chad uh, Daniels in Winnipeg to, mm -hmm. to Chris Dillon in, in Halifax and to uh, AC Coca in Toronto and to, and all these great talent. I got we got so many guys in the middle in uh, Hamilton. I'm, I'm trying to think of all the names, you know, the Jesse V. Uh, there's thinking of uh, Jesus, there's so many, and, and I'm so, and I'm so impressed because it's the first time in Canada. That, you know, we all have own territories. We all have our own provinces and everybody mm -hmm. does their own little thing. Yep. And I managed to go get a lot of talent from every territory and put it all together in this schmoz. Mm -hmm. and, and then what's going to happen is I found four sponsors who, as we eliminate them week by week, we're starting this in May, by the way. Okay. And so as we, so as we're, we're eliminating four wrestlers, female and male, every time we do a show, the last four, I found four sponsors around here, Quebec, that gave, would give $5,000 each to the winners. Oh, so wow. I'm going like, wow, you know, I used my notoriety and people were helping me and thank the Lord. And then I said to myself, I need to find something, you know, that's going to put a little incentive, like to get mm -hmm. everybody from. So, so first of all, we, we, we got the flights. We got sponsors to pay the flights from everybody around the country. I found sponsors with my girlfriend. We got hotels for them. And then, and so then I said to myself, I said, I wonder if I could get a wrestling school, you know, a big <laughs> wrestling school in the States where they could give them one day 
just one day where I could take my four winners and they could live a dream of one day of being with the superstars that come and work out in and out. Mm -hmm. And the Nightmare Factory was the one chosen. So so the guys that are in the AEW, they work out there, you mm -hmm. know, and they have the training facilities there. So QT Marshall and Cody Rhodes and Glazier, they own this thing. So I had the, I called a friend who gave me QT Marshall's number. Well, I don't know the guy. Mm -hmm. I got to tell you, I got to put everything in context for everybody. 30 years ago, when I had my falling out with Vince McMahon, I went like this. Finish wrestling. Mm -hmm. I don't want to see wrestling anymore. I was finished. I never watched wrestling. The only guys I knew was like Stone Cold because my students would go like this or, or Goldberg <laughs> or, or, or the guys that were John Cena was in movies. And one of my students was, hey, did you see the wrestler in the movie? Those are, And Kevin Owens, of course, was my student. But I only know that and The Rock, but I wrestled him as Marvia before. So I'd heard about him and seen him in movies and everything. But I didn't mm -hmm. know any of the talent. So I don't know any of the talent today. People talk about uh, sometimes CM Punk and guys like that. I don't know him. I've never seen him. I don't know him. So so I'm caught up in this thing where I get a phone number from a wrestling school, the Nightmare Factory, and it's QT Marshall's phone call. So I call mm -hmm. him up and I say, Mr. Marshall, I got this contest in Canada from one end to the other, and I got four winners of $5,000, but I'd like to give them a bonus. I'd like to take them down just one day, and you could evaluate them, like put them in the ring. We'll go on a vacation as tourists. We'll just mm -hmm. go there, and you could evaluate us, like just are they good on the mic or, you know, in the ring, and what you could maybe give them a few uh, uh, incentive or a few, uh, when I'm looking for the word there, uh, uh, you know. advice. Yeah. Advice. My girlfriend's beside me. She said, advice, <laughs> advice. So, anyway, so, 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 so I'm, that's all I'm looking for is one day. Mm -hmm. So that happens. So he says, yes. But when he answers, he talks to him in the phone. He says, oh, Mr. Rujo and Mr. Rujo. I go like, holy shit. You know, he's got respect for me, this guy. You know, it's incredible. So, uh, so he gave me that one day. So there I am, eight, like eight months ago, this project started. Mm -hmm. And I took all my connections around the world, like the, the Comic-Cons I did in Europe and the, the, the tours I did in Australia and everywhere. So I call all those connections I have and I do podcasts. Mm -hmm. And every time I do a podcast like yours today, mm -hmm. I put that video of QT Marshall in there. So about a month ago, QT Marshall calls me up. He writes me and he says, Jacques, what are you doing? So I'm afraid I'm saying, oh, shit, you know, he's pulling out or something, you know. Mm -hmm. He says, my phone at the Nightmare Factory is red. You know, he says, people are calling from all around the world. They want to know how they could have subscribed and now this and now that. He's hearing it from everybody around the world. Mm -hmm. So he says, why don't we give them a week? You know, just give them a week. And I went crazy. So I called everybody in my, my, my talent. I said, hey, we got a week. So what that means is you don't have to worry about the first day. You go there for one day, dry throat, nervous. You can't, mm -hmm. you don't have a second chance to make a first impression because now you got Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday to make up if you, if you screw up on Monday, you know, mm -hmm. on the first day. So everybody's so enthused and the media is getting behind it and this and that. And, the, and then about uh, three weeks ago, I'm doing a podcast with Nick Drosis in Montreal, a huge podcast. And I asked, so I never asked nothing to QT Marshall. I never asked nothing to nobody. I'm just pushing, pushing for eight months. And then mm -hmm. finally, I, I talked to QT and I said, QT, would you mind doing a video for Nick Brosses? And Drosses, he, he, I'm on his podcast and I, just because there's a lot of haters and a lot of people that are trying to stop my project and they're saying that I'm, I'm saying some stuff that's not true. And then, you know, so, so I'm going like, a, so he says, sure. So he sends me a video and in the video, my girlfriend and I, we look at it just before we, we do it on the podcast. And then he says three months, I'm looking at the video like, and I'm looking at my girlfriend like, did I hear it? I rewind, you know, I say, 
And he says 12 weeks, three months that he's going to take them for free. So what that means now, it's like, you know, I always said in wrestling, there's two things that are going to make it happen for you. Like in hockey and anything else. It's not always what you can do. It's who you know. Mm-hmm. And the second thing is like being at the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. So now they're going to be, it's not going to be like one day there, hello, Mr. Marshall, and you're shaking in your pants. And then, or if it's one week, it's like, hello, Mr. Marshall. And then if it's one month, it's a hi, cutie. And then it's two months, it's hey, buddy. And then three months later, it's like, you know, hey, I like you, you know? And mm-hmm. so now all the stars are going to come in from between tours. They're going to come and work out at the gym. So they're going to be with this. So now let's say Jake the Snake who hangs around there all the time. He's going to walk in and he's not going to say, uh, Hey, uh, what's your name there? No, he's going to say, uh, let's say, uh, hi, Jeremy. How are you doing today? Uh, mm-hmm. I'll give you an example. Or C.C. Galavis, you know, or they're going to talent that's going to make it there. Whoever makes it there, they're going to be friends with the superstars that I used to work with. And they're on the circuit now. Mm-hmm. So, like, it, it makes you in a, it puts you in a position. And I honestly believe, I honestly believe this. And I told this to all my, my students, uh, not my students, my, my, my characters that are in this project. You know what, guys? The way it's happened in the last eight months, I've been tra- working so hard on this project, not seeing what's happening. But if I try to step out on the outside and look at from the outside, I think we became the, the, the pet project of QT Marshall. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> I, I think he's he's into this. Like, you know, mm-hmm. he's really into this. And then so now I honestly tell my talent, guys, train, cardio. Ring, like ring rust. And I know it was hard with the COVID, you know, but try to find some places where you could roll on mats and do things and just keep yourself in the best shape of your life and then start reopening now. And and because uh, it's going to be an opportunity that's that's going to be, uh, you have to be ready for things like that. You mm-hmm. know, and, and, and I'm losing my, my thought that I wanted to say, but um, but I'm so excited at this thing. It's like amazing that uh, that all these people are going to have this chance that that. Uh, so uh, that's what I was going to say. So sorry. So what I wanted to say was, I honestly believe that out of the four talent that are going down there for three months, maybe two of them is going to make it in the big leagues. Mm-hmm. That's what I tell my talent. And I believe in it. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's going to happen. And QT never promised me nothing. But I honestly believe the way things are going, shaping up, that two of my talent, if if we are his pet project, he's gonna even if it's only dark matches or if it's just something like they do before eighteen thousand people or or something like to show the people here that hey, you didn't get in this contest for nothing. You know this was really <laughs> good, and, and I always tell my other characters too, my my participants, listen guys, there's four winners, but there's a lot more than that. For eight months now, QT Marshall's been checking every video that I have. He's been checking all the talent out. I've been doing podcasts around the world showing you guys your talent. You may get a call from Vancouver one day in Montreal because they didn't even know the organization lived in Montreal, that that, that kind of indie uh, operation. And they're going to say, hey, I like this guy. So they're going to call me and I'm going to tell them, hey, the guy's going to play your fight to go to Vancouver. So I'm connecting all these indies together and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. so it's amazing. I'm passing the torch. That's what I'm doing. I'm just passing the torch. This is a huge opportunity. And I mean, I'm going to make sure that I'm going to link the website. I encourage everyone to go and check it out because for all the wrestlers involved, there's videos, highlight videos, there's information about them. And you have such a wide variety. You have people with different experiences in the ring. You have, you know, different ages, you have, you know, uh, different personalities. It's not all just one style wrestler. I mean, uh, for listeners uh, who might be familiar, you've got uh, Will Webster from RCW, you have Chad Daniels yes. from CWE, 
Adam Ryder out in NEW and uh, Kevin Farrell, uh, who wrestles at Sydney Steel, who's yeah, wrestled Kevin in Alberta, yeah, yeah. Manitoba. The, so. Who's the one that has the Fleur de Lis in his back there? There's one, that, Clay Wilson. Clay Wilson. Clay Wilson. You know, and, and they say, I have all different characters and I'm having so much fun looking at all their gimmicks and stuff like that. And I'm saying to myself, hey, these guys are as good as I was when I started. It's like I said before, they just didn't have the right contacts or being at the right place at the right time. And I think this is going to give it, but I'm having so much fun just mm-hmm. looking at, you should see how the, the characters are so nice to me. It's like, you know, they're like, <laughs> hey, Jacques, you know, this is a great opportunity. And, and sometimes, you know, I just text them to encourage them on their Facebook. I, I put them all friends with me on Facebook mm-hmm. and they put something different on the wrestling. And I put flames underneath it. And I say, Wrestling Academy 2022, be ready, you know. <laughs> so I'm really there to inspire them and to coach them and stuff. So it's fun. Uh, one thing I really like is the the wide variety because you have people with um, who have different strengths. You have, you know, someone like Isaiah Bronson who online his uh, his um, social media game is a next level by, you know, the stuff oh, yeah? he's posting and everything. I think it's fantastic. Oh, you yeah, have, okay. You have someone like Jody Threat who has wrestled, you know, in the States. She's made a name for herself on the independent scene. She's involved with something like this. I think it is an incredible opportunity, and I can't wait to see this play out. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. And, you know, I have other guys, too, that I'd like to bring in, not without mentioning names, but uh, I'm thinking of some older, older guys there that are like 38, you know, and 40, that they never had the opportunity, but they have the experience mm-hmm. and they have the charisma. I'm thinking of Jeremy Prophet, one of my students for 20, 20, 20 years. He's been wrestling. He started with me. He's one of those who he's the total package. Like, you know, if you go see Jeremy Prophet and you see Jordy Taylor, he's older too. He looks a little older, but you know, I look at his expression, his facial expression. I'm saying, hey, mm-hmm. there's money to be made with him. You know, there's a lot of people like that that, that, that are almost at the end of their career, but they still have a last chance. Mm-hmm. And then you got the younger ones that have only been in the business two years. But they're great workers. They're great, and they don't have the experience, but they have the talent, mm-hmm. you know. And the the the, the high flying maneuvers that are crazy, like you know. And the, so so by going, if even if they don't uh, uh, make it to the end, because I honestly think that the person that has charisma, and the high flyer, and the experienced guy, and the guy who the less is more, he's going to have a great chance. And a lot of people ask me sometimes. Uh, What's charisma for you, Jacques? Like, you know, and I always tell them the same thing. I said, charisma for me is you go in a sports bar and there's wrestling on TV and you pass in front of the screen and you look up and then you go and you sit down. Or you come into the sports bar, you go in front of TV, you look up and then you turn and then you stop. That's charisma. Mm-hmm. Because he goes to get something into you that, that draws you into it. You know, and that for me is charisma mm-hmm. for me. So, yeah. so we have a lot of that in our talent. So, you know, I'm just saying if QT Marshall and, you know, QT Marshall could get, like I said, it's so amazing because QT Marshall is going to be looking at the four winners that I'm taking down. That That's another thing I have to tell you. Uh, but let me first say this, that he's going to be looking at the four wrestlers, uh, one woman and three men, but he's already looked at all the others. So he may be attached to one who didn't win mm-hmm. and he'll get in touch with me to have them there. But what I wanted to say, what's the greatest thing about this competition? I think it's the greatest thing in the world is I could have my favorites and I could have who I want. But the bottom line is there's three judges by the ring that are going to be there during the show. And okay. they're going to vote at 40%. And then at 60%, people from around the world will be able to text by their phone and to say who they want to keep and who they want to get rid of. 
So, so, so I'm, and I'm doing so many podcasts in Australia and London and England, everywhere mm-hmm. in the world, in the States, that I'm not the boss. It's the people, the fans that are the boss, you know, and that's what I think is the greatest thing. So also, you know, being able to perform and all of the things involved with wrestling, but also connecting with the fans and making sure that, you know, because that's going to be so impactful with the voting, you know, having and, that and, connection. And it's amazing because I, I, I <clears throat> among among uh, the wrestling uh, things that they that I'm trying to teach them and everything that I, I, I'm outside the ring too. Like you know, I, I go further than wrestling. Like example, I called all the talent, and I uh, and if you follow me on Facebook a little bit, you'll see I called all the talent, and that uh, and I told them, hey, you got to go to your local paper, and you got to go to your radio station. Because this is a national contest seen around the world, and you may represent their town one day. You may be mm-hmm. one of the famous people. So you got to go see your media, and you got to tell them this. Like, hey, that's what I did. You know what I did when I was started at 17 years old? I would always knock at the media's door, and I was really a, a pest. You know, and I was always going there all the time. Every time I come back from a tour, I'd go, would you put that picture from Mexico? Would you put that picture from Kansas <laughs> Would you put that picture from Knoxville? And they were always looking at me like, Okay, and I always, but every time I went to see the media, I always told them the same thing. You know, I was a little cocky then, and I told them, I said, you know, I appreciate you putting my picture in the paper like that, but you know, when I'm a big star, because I'm going to be a star, and when I'm a big star, I know you newspaper, you do a lot of charity events in the summer with baseball games and in the winter hockey games, and sometimes you use celebrities from boxing, from wrestling, from singing, and I'll be there for you for free. Mm -hmm. I'll be there. So if I become a hero one day because of you guys, you could count on me to be mm-hmm. there for you. So I did that and I showed that to all the talent that are with me, you know, and so so a lot of them used it. You know, mm-hmm. I got now I got some TV interviews coming in from some guys and some uh, re- reporters some, and, and stuff like that. I got some papers that came in, some articles in the papers. And so so I'm showing them how to self-promote themselves mm-hmm. to have the visibility. And then again, you know, I always come back to the same thing. You know, I was lucky in life, you know, but I made my luck. Mm-hmm. I created my luck. You know, I went forward and I moved and I worked and I did what I had to do. And, and, and I don't think it came from nobody. That came from me because I remember my dad and everybody else always calling me the Kodak kid. You know, like always trying to be, always trying <laughs> to put your faith in the media. But that worked for me mm-hmm. because the more they were seeing me, the more I was getting popular. You know, so 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 that's what I'm trying to teach them too. That there's not only your work in the ring and your time in the gym. There's the outside thing that you got to take care of too of the whole total package. You you have to put yourself out there. You have to get your name known, and just so be, let the people know who you are, what you're about, and just get eyes on you. It's wrestling. That's what you should be doing. And if you want them to vote for you, because the more votes you get, mm-hmm. the more you're gonna have a chance to stay till the end. Uh, for people listening, uh, how is this? How are they going to be able to watch this uh, play out? Thank you for asking. It's going to be on wrestling-academy.ca. Just go there. And, and I got to tell you this. Fun, this is funny for me. I always say this at the end of a podcast. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a music freak. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm Simon Carwell and, and uh, Katy Perry and, you know, The Voice and all those things. I'm just mm-hmm. a maniac about I always like music. And I always like the stress and the, the adrenaline of, of, come on, press that button, you know, press that button. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I always like that. And uh, what was your question? <laughs> <laughs> I asked how they were going to be able to watch. <laughs> 
Yeah. Yeah. Why did I say that? I wanted to bring, <laughs> I wanted to bring something to you. Huh? But yeah, 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 yeah. That's it. My girlfriend, she put me back on track. Again. <laughs> so it's like every time I watch the voice and those things like that, at the end of a song, at the end of the emotion, at the end of finally they got it or didn't, you'd always see this girl come on and say, please subscribe and press the thing and vote and, you know, give your comment to ring a bell. Mm -hmm. And I was always like, get out of there. Like, you know, get out of there. I, I turn it off. And now I'm the one doing it. So it's like, <laughs> now please subscribe and, and, and get the notification and put a comment. And that's how you'll be able to follow. You get the news of when it starts, where mm -hmm. it starts, how you could vote. And, and so, so that's how it's going to happen. <laughs> Perfect. Now, for everyone listening, uh, how can they? Where can they find you online uh, if they want to reach out? Maybe they want to get involved. What? Where can they find you? Yeah, wrestling. It's wrestling-academy.ca for to follow the thing. But if they want to, and, and personally text me, I, I always or talk to me. I'm on Facebook. I got a picture with my girlfriend. You'll recognize <laughs> me. Look at this face here. And then, yeah, yeah. And, and, and you could, I always answer to the people. I spend my days uh, talking back to people around the world because I have always learned one thing since I was very young, that if you, if, if you're there today, it's because the people brought you there, the people. So, so you can't neglect them. You always got to be there. And, and as a matter of fact, I was told by a lot of my girlfriends during my life, like, you know, you're taking too much time with them, you know, or this and that. And I'm saying, no, I'm not. And because, and on Facebook, sometimes I say things, you could follow me, it's public, my Facebook. A lot of times I write things about my personal life and stuff. And a lot of people are saying, Jacques, don't <laughs> talk about that. And I'm saying, well, why not? I talk about like that if they were in person, you know, and something. So I'm very open on my Facebook. So I enjoy getting the comments. I enjoy getting the, the questions and the, and then so, so that's just me though. You know, I've always been like that. So they could reach me on Facebook. I got a picture of my girlfriend. So anybody mm -hmm. wants to talk to me, they, they could go ahead and contact me there. Perfect. You know what? I hope they do. And I can't wait to see how this plays out. Jacques, I'm very excited. Thank you so much for joining me. Blair, this is a fun podcast. You brought me back to Mexico when I was crying. You brought me back a lot of places. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a great podcast. Thank, thank you for that. It was very good, Blair. Thank you so much.